0: This message is from Icon, from community, Icon church. community Church. Icon is a church located in Metro located Atlanta in Metro it seeks to be Atlanta. defined by grace, grace, grace community, community, community and, and renewal. Community and renewal. For more information, please visit our website at iconcommunitychurch.org, at iconcommunitychurch.org. or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. What would you do? Or how different would your life be if you actually believed that God loved you? What would that mean to you if you understood just how much God loves you? That might sound like such a cliche question because we throw that phrase out often. We throw the word love around often. I love you. They love me. God loves you. What does that mean? What should that mean? How might that change the way we function if we knew not only that God loved us, but just how much God loved us? Back in in roughly 2005, 2006, there were sociologists at Baylor University who uh, conducted a survey and they were studying uh, America's different views on God. And so they did a Gallup survey and and uh, they wanted to identify roughly four distinct views of God because these kept coming up. These four ideas of God kept arising. And so they wanted to get a feel for how people viewed God's personality and how God interacted with the world. And here's those four that people roughly believed in a uh, an authoritarian God who is angry at humanity's sins, engaged in every creature's life, and engaged in world affairs. The second view was a benevolent God. I was roughly a quarter of the people who is forgiving and accepting of anyone who repents. The third view of God is is a critical God who has his judgmental eye on the world but will not intervene uh, to either punish or to comfort He's just kind of critical, looking down, look at how bad they are, and just sits back and waits. And finally, a distant God, a a transcendent God. Again, that's another quarter of the population. They view God as one who is more of a a cosmic force that launched the world, then left it spinning on its own. That survey is is probably a a good, uh, accurate cross-section of how most people kind of view God, especially here in America. That survey says a lot about ourselves. It tells us that many people's understanding of God, belief in God, is largely academic. It's largely kind of how I think and what I assume God uh, to be. Some think that God resentfully uh, uh, admits us into his kingdom. Right. There's this idea that, like, God is holy and we know that and God is godly. And so uh, he sees us as wicked sinners that that really don't deserve to be nearby and to be close. But he reluctantly admits us because Christ created a loophole in the Old Testament law. And since Christ created the loophole, God is almost holding his nose as he lets us in. So we're in and we're thankful But our praise is rooted in, Lord, thank you for holding your nose for me. That's how some people view God. Other people believe that God does care about us, but he just doesn't want to be involved uh, in our everyday lives. So he cares about us to a degree, but he doesn't want to get into the the minutia of our lives, the minutia of our pain, the the, the fine uh, details, the fine print in our struggles. And then even more, other people believe that God's love is distant and impersonal, right? The, the words to a, a, a song that came out some time ago that says, God is watching us from a distance. That's how we're, that's how we often view God. And while we may not have uh, put those words together, we may not have strung uh, the words together in that way. The way we live functionally would indicate this. And every one of these. There's a major misconception. There's a, there's, a, there's a misconception when you recognize the most popular verse that uh, folks quote in, in the New Testament, John three sixteen, right? For God so loved the world. That verse can't be characterized by any of these academic ways in which we view God. In other words, we know what the verse says, but it never really affects us. Somehow that idea that God loves us doesn't seem to affect us. And so we end up diminishing God's love for us in the name of humility. Because again, it's like, well, God, I mean, God loves me, but he really doesn't want to have to love me. He's just kind of held hostage by this whole Jesus thing. And so that's why he loves me. What if you knew just how much God loves you? What might that mean for you? What might that mean for us? How would that change your life? This passage, this yet another small book, as we go through the minor prophets, this book of, of Zephaniah, I believe does paint that picture for us. And to go back to something we said before, a couple of weeks ago, <clears throat> we fall into this trap of viewing God. Right, as somebody different in the Old Testament than he is in the New Testament. We view him as the judging, uh, uh, retribution-centered God in the Old Testament, bringing punishment for sin and wrongdoing. And in the New Testament, godly, loving, compassionate, caring. We almost treat these, these ideas of God as two different gods. We almost treat them the way that you would view, uh, the way that you would view maybe somebody playing two different roles and they having, they're having to go and change their clothes and then come back and be a completely different person. And we act like God has one robe for when he's in judgment mode and a different robe for when he's in love and forgiveness and grace and mercy mode. And we, we treat them like two different roles. In many ways, we treat God the way you may have treated, right, whoever the authoritative parental figure was in your life growing up. Traditionally, when you look, sometimes the movies would always have this as like, you know, the mom's at home and and taking care of the home. And then uh, if one of the kids got out of line, she would say something like, just wait until your father comes home. Now, we don't have to just necessarily say father. We know that families look very different. So just imagine whoever that authoritative uh, p- parental role was, whoever that was, it might have been an uncle, an aunt, a grandmother, a grandfather, the, the significant other of a parent, wh- whoever that is, they played the role of the authoritative person that would bring judgment and that would bring uh, a critique of what was wrong. And so the idea was that the, the, the way it normally would work is, well, when I, if I get out of line, the loving one's going to deal with me one way, but the one who's going to bring swift justice is going to deal with me a different way. And so we often view God as just wait until your father gets home. And here's the thing. That's not necessarily bad or wrong, right, to have someone that's like, hey, I'm going to come and tell you about what's wrong here. The thing is, we act as if they can't, they can't exist within the same Person. They can't exist within the same entity. We, we think that someone who brings judgment, right, that 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 uh, character trait or that attribute, identifying and bringing real judgment, we act if this that is if that is incongruous with someone who's loving and merciful and magnanimous. And so this book shows us a God who is both. We do not have to live in this theological dichotomy. We don't have to create either ors with God. It's not either God is judging or God is loving. It's not, I don't really prefer that Old Testament judging God. I prefer that New Testament loving God. You're missing God altogether. They are congruent. Those things exist together. It doesn't always happen in our family upbringing, right? Depending on how our filial relationships look, the the, the reason why it's so difficult to do that is most folks have identified the way that we typically see God is rooted in how we've seen our parents or how we've been loved or not loved by our parents and and, and those who have had charge over us. So if I had someone at home who brought real justice and, and discipline, but it often was rooted in their anger and frustration with me. Then my behavior may have changed truly because I didn't want to keep dealing with that justice, but the transformation on a heart level may not have occurred because we're not perfect parents aren't perfect parents may be trying that sometimes it works sometimes it doesn't but what sticks with us a lot is man i didn't like like the pain that came with that and i still can't maybe i didn't have the kind of transformation internally that needed to happen because much of their discipline was rooted in their anger and in their frustration and i never saw that married to a love and a grace and a mercy and a compassion for me at the same time and so if that's you Then maybe it is very difficult for you to see a God who judges sin, but also loves and restores sinners. This is what we see in Zephaniah. So by way of quick review, if you haven't read Zephaniah before, it's just a small three chapter book. And it really is a book of poetry. Zephaniah is prophetically writing poems to describe the situation in which the the, the children of Israel had found themselves. And you look at Zephaniah 1.1, 1, 1, the word of the Lord came to Zephaniah, son of Cushai, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah. <clears throat> One thing we need to know here contextually is uh, who was king during this time? The king here is a man named Josiah. He had begun to reign in Judah, which was the southern kingdom, uh, about 80 years after the northern kingdom had been wiped out. If you recall, the, the northern kingdom had been wicked as well. That was the kingdom of Israel because you had the kingdom had been split into two. And the northern kingdom of Israel had already walked into idolatry, had already walked into sin, wickedness, some of the horrific ways that they had not cared for their own people and began to worship other gods, both in their hearts and in practice. And so God had been doing what he's always done. If you turn away from me, I will raise up your enemies and they will come and wipe you out. And so that had happened already. So 80 years after the northern kingdom has been wiped out, now you've got the southern kingdom who had not learned the lesson of the northern kingdom. They had not yet learned it. They were sinking deeper and deeper into sin. They were sinking deeper into rebellion against God. And so King Josiah is in his 18th year, we read, and in this 18th year, something interesting happened. Here he is ruling over uh, the, the southern kingdom of Judah and, and trying. Jo- Josiah is trying. He wants to see the people turn their hearts back to God. And one of the, 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 the high priests at the time, the high priest Hilkiah, the, he, he finds a copy of, of the book of the law that had been ignored, buried away for decades. And they're like, oh, my goodness, we're finding the word of God again. We have been our people have been rebelling for so long. We have found the word of God. So when the priest brought it to King Josiah, and you see this in Second Kings, he brings it to King Josiah and King Josiah is he's broken. He's overwhelmed. He's going. This is part of the reason why we have fallen into such spiritual disrepair. So he humbled himself before the Lord and he said, we're going to, he, he, he tore his clothes as a sign of weeping and mourning. And he said, we've got to be restored. So what did he do over the next 13 years? He led this amazing reformation in Judah based on the law of God, not just based off of, we ought to do better. Let's try. He, we're going to look at God's standard and we're going to restore back to that. We're going to see what that looks like. So what did he do? He renewed this covenant between God and his people. He took all of the all of the different artifacts of these false gods, Baal and Asherah out of the temple, burned them in the fields, uh, deposed any of the idolatrous priests, got rid of any of the houses of the male cult prostitutes that had existed during that time, got rid of the horses that uh, the king of Judah had dedicated to the sun at one point. You see all of this in 2 Kings, and he reinstituted the Passover that had been ignored since the days of the judges. These folks were wicked. They had completely forgotten who God was, walked away from him, and replaced him with other things. No different than us. Let's be honest. It's really easy to once if the cultural changes occur in a certain kind of way and it doesn't feel like uh, it is as entertaining or as comfortable to continue to worship God, both in our hearts and in our actions and in the ways that we comport ourselves, then we replace it with something else. These were the days of Zephaniah. So when Zephaniah begins, this is where we find ourselves. This is where we see Zephaniah over all these years. Right. When they were wicked, Zephaniah had been warning. He had been seeing what was happening. He had been calling out and saying, as this happens, God is going to bring judgment. We're going to see language used here. The day of the Lord, that day of the Lord is referring to that day of reckoning. When God comes to bring judgment here, it's not going to be pretty. So what you see in the first uh, two chapters here, the first chapter is very specifically talking about Jerusalem. Very specifically saying certain things that God will do on this great day of the Lord when that day of reckoning comes. So don't get me wrong. We are seeing the judging part, right? We are seeing real uh, uh, retribution and punishment coming. He says, I will completely sweep away everything from the face of the earth. This is the Lord's declaration. Look how specific he is. I will sweep away people and animals. I will sweep away the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea and the ruins along the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth. This is the Lord's declaration. God is basically opening up with like an anti Genesis 1, 1 message. In many ways, in the beginning, with his words, he created all of these amazing things for real flourishing, created the animals, created the birds of the sky, the fish in the sea, human beings, all these things that he created. And now he's saying, I'm going to undo all of these things for you and where you are. I'm going to undo good creation. I'm going to undo the things that have been formed and created for you because of the ways that you have rebelled against me. And he gets even more specific. I'm stretching out my hand against Judah. So he specifically highlights people who have rebelled against him. If you're one of those people that loves super, super loving God and you leave out his judgment, you're going to miss who God is, too. God does care about holiness and by holiness. We're not just talking about which practices you hold to by holiness. It's just simply saying God expects and requires us to follow him, to love him with our whole hearts, to acknowledge him in every aspect of our lives, to walk in such a way that says, I love God and I love those that he's made in his image. So so these folks, the, the folks in Judah, had failed to do that. So he starts to get specific. I'm getting rid of this. I'm getting rid of that. You've got these things uh, dedicated to Baal. Getting rid of that. I'm going to cut off all of that. Anything that even looks like idolatry in the land. I'm cutting it off. So chapter one really is a lot of that. I won't go too much because honestly, much of chapter one and even chapter two is a lot of what we see in a lot of the minor prophets. God calling out his people for ways in which they have not related well to him and related well to other image bearers. You have been unholy. You have not been righteous. You have been unjust. So that's a lot of the same language, right? Except for chapter one is specifically focusing on Jerusalem. Chapter two expands out God's focus. So so now you see Zephaniah expanding his focus to talk not just about Judah, but to talk about all the nations that are wicked, to talk about all the people that have turned against him. So he's going in and, and really bringing real judgment against Judah first, then judgment against the nations. Beginning of chapter 2, gather yourselves together, gather together, undesirable nation, before before the decree takes effect and the day passes like chaff, before the burning of the Lord's anger overtakes you, before the day of the Lord's anger overtakes you. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the earth, who carry out what he commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility, perhaps you will be concealed on the day of the Lord's anger. Then he moves forward to talk through several of the different nations that have been wicked. And it's interesting because he makes reference in, in, in many ways to some of the Jewish leaders and the leaders in Jerusalem. And he doesn't even name them as leaders in Jerusalem. He kind of, uh, in many ways, just lump, lumps them in with the rest of these wicked nations. It's almost like you're not even behaving like those that are part of my nation. I'm not even considering you a part of my nation. And so he lumps them all uh, with the rest of the nation. So if you were to look at the first couple chapters, right, 75 percent of this book is judgment. 75 percent of this book is God showing his frustration, his anger. And yet he doesn't end there. If we're listening to this message, we're like, man, it's just there's a lot of judgment, And not in that superficial thing of like, you know, a lot of times we're like, I don't like judgment because really what we're saying is I don't like people pointing out things that actually need to change in me. I don't like judgment. I want and when they say I want somebody to love me or I want people to be gracious with me, really, it's I want someone to co-sign the things that I'm doing that are completely out of uh, line with where God has me or where where God would want me. I just want someone to co-sign my rebellion. I don't want anybody to challenge it. So I want a God that will co-sign my rebellion, not one that will challenge it. And then if, if you co-sign my rebellion, that's how I define love. That's how, you know, we love to say this all the time. Like, I, I want a God that's going to love me for me. I want a God that's not going to want to change me. Real love shouldn't change me. That is, we've said it before, that is a lie. Real love does change things. Real love should change us. A parent who loves their child doesn't let them exist completely and perfectly the way that they were when they were born. When they were born, there were certain things that were amazing, things about their character, things that uh, maybe they're, 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 uh, the way that they were wired, as we say, or things, certain personality traits that God may have deposited there. Those things are great. We find a way to steward that. But there's also things that will come up that might be rebellious There's certain things that will come up that might be very selfish, things that can be self-worshipful that we all have. We don't just say, well, we just I'm going to let uh, them continue to do that because I love them and I don't want to change them. I just want to be exactly who they naturally are. No. God doesn't even let us be exactly who we naturally are because who we naturally are are people that are prone to rebel. So don't think that true love doesn't mean change is necessary or it do- doesn't mean change isn't necessary. True love always necessitates real change. Always. So where do we find hope then? Because right now we've seen legitimate critique, legitimate pointing out of sin, legitimate pointing out of rebellion and and injustice. And we've seen it throughout. And there's a day of reckoning coming. And so these folks are hearing this and they know, oh, my goodness. We clearly have violated the law of God. We have violated the heart of God. We have broken the heart of God. He is angry and he is hurt and he has promised to bring swift judgment. Ultimately, Zephaniah has just said, just wait until your father gets home. I just know the household I was in when that was said, I was trembling in fear, hiding in my room worried about what was coming next and you know why because i couldn't figure out anything else i could do to avoid the coming punishment couldn't figure out anything i could do even if i had done something legitimately wrong and i tried to do everything in my power to try to make it right i still was going that punishment is coming and it is going to be fierce and i don't know how i'm going to deal with this i'm scared my heart is panting it's it's really this is a worrisome thing and so they're in the same place and this is God we're talking about. Oh, my God, what's getting ready to come? So where do you find a message of hope? How do we get to that place? Because chapters one and two have kind of been very specific. Here's what's happening. And it's been very forceful. A lot of things horrible coming. Even in the beginning of chapter three, God is still calling out. Woe to the city that is rebellious and defiled, the oppressive city. Still pointing out her sin, she's not obeyed, she's not accepted discipline, she's not trusted in the Lord, she's not drawn near to her God. The princes within her are roaring lions, her judges are wolves of the night which leave nothing for the morning. Here he is critiquing the, the leaders of uh, the southern kingdom here in ways in which they have completely uh, abdicated their roles as real godly leaders and stewards of God's people and God's word. And so he's calling out all of this saying, I've cut them off. I've cut off the nations I've, all their former towers are destroyed. All these horrific things uh, that they've done, they're going to be punished. So, again, they're still going. Can we get some hope here? Can we get something, something to hold on to? Is there any way for us to have real hope that something can change for us? We get it. We've fallen. We get it. We are off. We get it. We have been rebellious. And what, what have we said before? When God brings punishment when God threatens punishment he does it perfectly in ways that even the best parents fail at because his ultimate goal is not to punish solely because of our wrongdoing his ultimate goal is to correct so that we can be fully restored that's always the goal of God's punishment that's that's how we can see punishment and judgment with love and grace within the same costume, in the same wardrobe. That's why we don't have to separate them because they, they exist concurrently. So where do we find the message of hope? We see the message of hope. We start seeing restoration start to show up and be promised again. Look at verse 14. Sing for joy, daughter Zion. Shout loudly, Israel. Be glad and celebrate with all your heart, daughter Jerusalem. The Lord has removed your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. The king of Israel, the Lord, is among you. You need no longer fear harm. On that day, it will be said to Jerusalem, do not fear. Zion, do not let your hands grow weak. The Lord, your God, is among you, a warrior who saves. What we're seeing here is this God does a great. Well, he does a perfect job. He's God. And what he does is he shows us. I'm going to show you where your sin is. It is very loving to show you where your sin is. I'm going to show you where your sin is and I'm going to show you what sin does to my heart. And I'm going to show you what what uh, honestly what is necessitated by your sin if you don't turn from it. So your sin, your unrepentant sin necessitates my judgment. And it necessitates my judgment because ultimately it's my judgment that will lead to your restoration. So I have to bring this to you. So he does. He brings this judgment and he makes it clear what's going to happen. And as a result, folks are waiting for real hope. And here's what he's showing you. He's showing all of us that even in the midst of our sin, even in the midst of the ways in which we have completely gone astray, intentionally, not just we stumbled and made a mistake. We've made that distinction before. Right. Big difference between knowing there's a curb there and uh, or not knowing there's a curb there and slipping and falling over it versus knowing there's a curb there and still going and slipping and falling over it. I willingly made the mistake. I willingly made the bad decision. M- these sins are willful sins and we can acknowledge that in us. Right. God knows. He sees it. He's pointed it out to us. And now we are made aware of it. We are becoming cognizant of our sin. Part of maturing as a believer is becoming more and more cognizant of sin that's still present. And so now God is showing them, here's where your sin is. I'm pushing you to restoration. I'm pushing you to repentance. If you get to a place where you are humbled by your sin, Humbled and broken by your sin to the point where you're moved to repenting, moved to changing that metanoia word in the Greek, this change and turning of heart mindset, this posture switch. If that begins to change, when that begins to change, you don't have to be held hostage by your sin any longer. Here's how we know this, because look at what God says. He says you can real, you can have real hope. You can start to sing daughter Zion. You, the one who's aware of your sin, the one who knows the ways that you have moved away from me, I'm restoring you. You can sing again. See, a lot of times we think of God as the God who has judgment to bring and not the God who has a song to sing. But do you know that God sings? Look at this. Look at the next thing that he says. In, in verse 15, and go back again. The Lord has removed your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. The king of Israel, the Lord is among you. You no longer uh, need to fear harm. On that day, it will be said to Jerusalem, do not fear. Zion, do not let your hands grow weak. That says this language that says don't kind of let your hands just fall limp, hopeless. What can I do? Walking around like Charlie Brown with a rain cloud over her head, Eeyore style. You don't have to do that. You don't have to be broken and overcome over your own sin and shame because he's removed it. If you have repented as he has enabled you, he's removed it so much so that you can begin to sing. You can begin to rejoice and praise. Then it says the Lord, your God is among you, a warrior who saves. He will rejoice over you with gladness he will quiet in his love he will delight in you with singing so while he is a bringer of your wrong he is a singer of your song God sings over you he rejoices over you the word in the Hebrew there is this word of like a parent that's giddy almost over the top, giddy and excited, like, look at my child, look at my son. In many ways, this is the picture of what we see when God is talking to Satan about Job. Have you considered my servant, Job? God gets excited and giddy and loving and doting on us. Us, the ones who have rebelled at times, the ones who have run away from him. God doesn't hold on to that. He corrects us and then loves and sings over us. So when you can you imagine that? Imagine that kind of love that's there. The kind of love that says, I know that you're broken over your sin. I'm glad that you're broken, but don't hang limp. Don't hold your head low. And mind you, he's not saying hold your head high because of some artificial form of of self-improvement, artificial form of like self-encouragement, encourage yourself. No. That's not going to work over time. That's going to be exhausting. I'm I'm warning you now. Finding ways to keep encouraging yourself, that's going to be exhausting because you're also going to be aware of all the ways you fail yourself. But when God is the one that's constantly saying, I'm lifting your chin up, I'm empowering you to come back to me. I'm empowering you to be able to follow me. And I'm singing a song over you. And the song that I sing over you, you can now sing about yourself and about me. And you can sing it to each other and you can sing it back to me. I'm putting a song in your mouth. I'm putting a song in your heart. Imagine the comfort that these folks are getting from this message. The message of doom and gloom become replaced by this idea of singing over you. The doom and gloom says, I, I, I see you as sinners and I'm bringing judgment. But that's how you know he's not just a God of judgment. He's a God of restoration. I restore you so that the old, the old gloom can turn into real blooming. I want you to bloom where I have you. I'm going to grow you now. Imagine the love that God demonstrates. Do you believe that God loves you? Do you believe that God loves you in this way? Do you believe that that so much so that you can hold your head up? Not because of anything you've done, not because of any kind of aphorism you tell yourself. But because of the ways in which God has restored you, promises to restore you and shows how excited he is about you, that he sings over you, rejoicing over you with singing. Do you get how wonderful this is? Can you sense the wonder in that? We don't function like this. We struggle with functioning like even if we get to a place where reconciliation happens when people have hurt us deeply. It can take a long time, maybe a lifetime to get to a point where we are so excited that we sing over the relationship we have with the person. That's why God is God and we're not. We're not always guaranteed that that's going to happen in our relationships. It's guaranteed to happen in our relationship with God. There's no depth you can go to and not be restored. There's no depth you can go to and not have a song sung over you when God brings you back. This is why it can be hard for us. What reasons would make you not know that God loves you? What reasons would make you not realize how much God loves you? You got to answer that question because that is probably what's holding you back from being changed. I'm not understanding or I can't understand how God could truly love me to that extent. So since I don't believe that he loves me like that, I can't function like one who is loved. Children function very differently when they know they're loved. Animals function very differently when they know they're loved. Creatures function differently when they are cared for well. When you think about people, again, with children, if a child functions like one who just knows they're not loved or doesn't believe that they're loved, there are ways that they act out. There are things they start to do to insulate themselves. There are things they start to do to comfort themselves, very damaging things. And those children become teenagers that are very damaging. And those teenagers become adults that become very damaging. Do you know that God loves you? Because if you don't, you are probably being more and more increasingly damaged, not just to yourself, but to other people. What stops you from knowing that God loves you? Do you say to yourself, well, you don't understand, Daryl. I've got so much guilt. I, I feel so I'm so guilty of certain things. There's no way God can rejoice over me. Did you not read the stuff that these folks have been doing? before God said he was going to sing over those that had repented. But, but in our minds, I, I can't, there's no way God would rejoice over me. Yet, verse 15 here says, the Lord has removed your punishment. He has turned, uh, he has turned back your enemy. The punishment that was due to you, because God, and not, as Christians through Christ, has removed your sin as far as the East is from the West. Now all that's left is a song to sing. So what stops you from knowing? You feel like you're too guilty? That's been removed. What's the next thing? Well, you don't understand. I have so many people that are are against me. I have so many obstacles that are on every side. I have so many enemies. Do you look at verse 17? The Lord your God is among you, a warrior who saves. A warrior who saves, a warrior who gives victory. Look at verse 19 again. Yes, at that time, I will deal with all who oppress you. I will save the lame and gather the outcasts. I will make those who were disgraced throughout the earth receive praise and fame. So you say that you think you're surrounded by so much. There's so many bad things happening. There's so many bad people around you. God has said, I'm removing all of them. I see them. I see what's happening to you. You're not alone there and I am there with you. Can you not feel that the love of God? Do you not know how God loves you? Or maybe you feel like many feel. God is so far removed. I just don't feel close to him. God feels really far from me. I, I, I can't believe that God loves me because I know how holy he is. He's so holy that he seems just so far removed from me because I'm aware of all the ways that I'm not holy enough. So there's no way he can be close to me. There's no way he can be close. And yet verse 17 reminds us again that he is close to us. Beginning of 17, the Lord, your God is among you. Some versions say he is in your midst. God is not far from you. His word is reminding us. Zephaniah is reminding these people who know they deserve swift judgment after God tells them about themselves and then says, but I'm not far from you. Your sin won't push me so far away that you can't be restored. Do you know just how much God loves you? Well, you might say, well, I, I even if I know that maybe uh, I'm I'm not involved in certain sin now, I have so much shame over things. I have so much, uh, uh, not just the guilt of being in sin now, I have shame over things that's happened in the past. And maybe I've uh, moved past that and, and I've repented from that and all of those things, but I feel the shame. And not only do I feel the shame, other people know about things that maybe I've done. So because they constantly remember it or remind me of it, I still feel like I can't possibly be loved as much as you say that I am. Because sometimes even, especially in in, in the church, Christians can be the worst at making other people feel like they're not quite loved enough because we have that great record of all the shameful things somebody's done. And so you might feel that sense of shame. You're like, no, I, I, I can't because I feel enslaved by my shame. Maybe I feel belittled by people who know certain things or I've been scoffed at because of things that has occurred. I can't possibly be loved by God as much as you say. But do you see the promise again at the end of verse 19? I will make those who were disgraced through the earth receive praise and fame. That's how much God loves you. Do you see that? That whatever the depth of your shame is. God's grace and mercy abounds all the more. I love you enough to put you in a place where the things that you thought would make you feel disgraced. I am singing over you and making things praiseworthy about you. I'm reshaping your past, your present and your future. You have a reason to hold your head up again. You're like, well, I I don't know how this kind of joy can apply to me. You're telling me that God loves me. You're saying that he sings over me. But I still have these things that are in my way. He's supposed to love uh, his his glory above all things. You say that he takes pleasure in in these things about me. How can I even imagine that he would be interested in me? How does that God uh, show that kind of love for me? And verse 12, finally, at the end, gives us that answer. I will leave a meek and humble people among you, and they will take refuge in the name of the Lord. It is so good for us to be aware of where we are. It's so good for us to be aware of our sin, but not to a place where it debilitates us, but where it humbles us. So we never get to a place where we know that we're so loved. This is where the other side gets unhealthy. We're so loved that we just do whatever. We remain humble. And when we humble ourselves, we seek the glory of God in all things. If we hide our name in the name of God, if we clothe ourselves in the righteousness of God, If we get to a place where we see our heavenly father who loves his name and his glory more than uh, more than anything else. Guess what? We realize he's going to reward us beyond our wildest dreams. We realize that he sees us as his own and he says, I'm going to restore you so that you can follow me, love me, worship me, because that is for your best. So, family, we can put aside. We can put aside the shame that we have and the things that we've done, and we can put aside the pride and the boasting in the things that we've done. We can take refuge in God. You feel ashamed. Take refuge in God. You're really proud of yourself. Take refuge in God. This is the only way for us to see a God that has both justice and his magnanimity and believe that they both occur together. Our God loves us. He calls us to be righteous. He calls us to repent and he restores us. Do you know that your God loves you? Because now when somebody says, just wait till your father comes, you can hold your head up high and sing and welcome him. Let's pray. God, thank you for being our God. Thank you for being our father. Thank you for the ways that you show us love. Thank you for the ways in which you uh, correct us. Thank you for the ways in which you bring your judgment, but the ways that you bring your restoration. God, we know that our life is a lifetime of wrestling through sin, shame, guilt, and preaching your truth back to ourselves. That you love us, that you are restoring us, that you are perfecting us, and that you are never leaving us. God, will we know that you love us. Make us not just know that you love us. Make us not just regurgitate the, uh, the idea that you love us. Make us feel your love. Make us know the degree to which you love us. So much so, you don't overlook our sin. You punished our sin. Put it on Jesus. Loved us enough to still be just and punish sin, but then to restore us. Put our sin on Jesus and give his righteousness to us. May we sing a song of gladness. May we imagine you singing over us, not a God with arms folded with furrowed brow, but a God with arms outstretched, dancing, singing giddily over your children. Why? Because you love us. We thank you in Jesus' name, amen. Let's receive this benediction from the God that loves us. Hear the language of a God that loves you today. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. It is to the only wise God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, dominion, and power, both now and forever. And all of God's people said, Amen. God bless you. Praise God from whom all